Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Robin Vincent. She began her journey as a pediatric speech pathologist at Texas Christian University, where she obtained her bachelor's degree in communication sciences and disorders. She then attended the University of Texas at Dallas, where she obtained her master's degree. Her career has been focused on the pediatric population with emphasis on early language, complex communication disorders, including apraxia and selective mutism, as well as feeding and swallowing disorders. Throughout her career, she has completed numerous continuing education courses in the area of pediatric feeding and swallowing, courses focused on oral sensory feeding disorders, transitioning from tube to oral feedings, feeding and swallowing with medically complex patients, and infant feeding. Robin has a passion for working with clients and families through caregiver and parent coaching and empowerment in areas including, but not limited to, early communication, apraxia, and feeding and swallowing disorders. She's also passionate about educating therapists in these areas. In her role as clinical director of onboarding and clinical education for Expressible, she facilitates therapist education, mentoring, and training to ensure all Expressible therapists are supported in their efforts to provide clinical excellence to their clients. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Robin. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Good. Thank you so much for joining me. Yes. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. Um, I am obviously a speech pathologist, been so for, gosh, just over 19 years, which is insane to me. Um, for most of that time, I have been a feeder in some capacity. I've worked in outpatient, home health, and now in teletherapy. 
the teletherapy side of feeding hasn't been as uh, predominant as I would like it. And I kind of like to change that, but uh, it's not taking its footing as well as I would, I would think, but we'll, we'll work on changing that in, in the future, but that's about it. I have a really big passion for peer education. It's my favorite thing. I think as we get tenured in, in life and therapy that we really have an obligation to those younger therapists to teach them what we cannot be taught in school. Yeah. What, what real experience with clients looks like and what gray really exists and how to do things well and serve our clients in the best way possible. So that's kind of me in a nutshell, really quick. Um, I'm a wife, a mother of two and I live in Texas and it's fun and I have an awesome labradoodle. That's about it. All right. All right. I love it. Okay. Yeah. I, there's a few things there that, that I love what you said. And I think, yeah, it's, I actually had that conversation with a colleague last week about sort of just so many gray areas in our field, you know, and, and I think I've heard so many other, like I, I've had so many amazing researchers and professors come on this podcast and, you know, they've always said like sort of the more experience I get, the real, I, I realize the less I know. And I'm like, how can that be? And I feel like I'm getting there now. Like, I feel like I'm learning so much more and I'm like, crap, I used to think that was really black or white, but it's not, it's very gray. And so it's, it's interesting that you said that because I, I, yeah, like I said, I had a really in-depth conversation with a colleague last week about just so many gray areas that might not be right or wrong, but just how one SLP interprets something versus another. And I just, you know, I don't know that it's good or bad, and I don't know that we're ever going to come to a general consensus on a lot of things, but it's, I think yeah. it's one thing that people need to realize happens a lot more than we think it happens. Yes, yes. There's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a perfect in any way. Um, I kind of teach a lot when I'm mentoring and doing those things. I, my biggest saying is functional imperfection. And that's, it's that way with everything. Yeah. You know, as I get older and I've been a therapist for as long as I have, I am constantly saying, you know, there's value in saying, I don't know. There's value in being transparent and telling families, we're going to work through this together. I'm not quite sure because each and every one of those kids is unique and presents a different challenge and no mechanism is the same as the other one. And what works for this one's not going to work for the next one. And there's so many things that I've just found as time goes on that black and white doesn't exist. The client that we're taught about in grad school and at the beginning of our careers, we never run across that person. And so it's just not going to work. And so there's so much more value in, in really forging relationships. Um, when I've asked a lot, like, how do I know what to do? I've been asked that by so many, so many of my mentees. How did you know to do that? And I'm like, um, I feel like feeding therapy is an intuitive therapy. I feel like there's no book that's going to teach you what to do. There's nobody that can really tell you, oh, when this happens, do this. Cause it really never really falls just so. So I, I'm a relationship builder. I build relationships. I learn my people. I know when I can push. I know when I can't. And, you know, there's so much more that goes into what we do than just food and a mechanism. Yeah. You know, yeah. we, we can't isolate a throat and, you know, we can't isolate a swallow. It truly is in a whole house of, of emotions. And there's a feeder that has emotions that's bringing into that and it all plays together yeah. and it's all super important to touch upon. Right. So I, I'm one of those people that's kind of outside the box. Oftentimes when I teach, I'm like, I, I just have to kind of, you have to roll with me and just feel it. You got to feel it. We're just going to feel it together. Let's feel it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So, so let's, let's dive in here, Robin. I, I love this concept of teletherapy feeding because it sounds just like something that there's no way on this earth that could possibly happen. Um, but I will say, I know during right. COVID, I had to experience that with my son. It was the only way that we could get that that we could get services for my son. And I think I was pleasantly yeah. surprised yes. that it worked out better than I thought it would. So I, that's, I, I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you today because I, I've got some experience with this and I, I would just love to hear what it looks like in your world. So my first experience, just like you, pure skepticism, to be quite honest. So before I started teletherapy, I was in home health. Um, I was the feeding specialist for all of Central Texas, which is a very large expanse. I worked for a very large home health company, and I was their specialist. And in that role, what that meant was I basically got the most acute cases. Anybody on my team of tons of feeding therapists, that if they couldn't handle it, it rolled to me. My job was to ensure competency of all of those therapists to read every report so we could avoid any denial. It was a big job, but I had the most acute challenging cases on my caseload. And so serendipitously, I decided to take this little side job for teletherapy in none other than February of 2020. I just decided, Leanne had started the company. Um, We kind of, I joke around that we were set up on a blind date. We had worked at another company Together, I say together, different locations hadn't really ever met, but we were set up by a colleague and the colleague said, I think you'd be perfect for Expressible. And so I met Leanne and I thought, maybe this is a good way to like have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to be more available to my kids. So I thought, let's try this out. I didn't think it would work. I was very, very worried. I thought there's no way feeding therapy can happen on teletherapy, you know, old dog new tricks. Sometimes that's tough. Um, Then the world shut down and I had these very challenging kiddos that I had to figure out how do I serve them in some capacity because they need something. And so then luckily I'm an outside the box person. I kind of am totally willing to roll with it and flex. I'm not rigid at all. And I thought, you know, whatever I can give them is better than them not having anything. So let's figure it out, right? They have to eat whether COVID's here or not. Their parents have to engage with them whether COVID's here or not. And so I I thought, we're just going to figure this out. We're going to figure out together. So I had a whole caseload. And we transitioned to teletherapy. And let me tell you, some of them were not appropriate. And I'm not here to say that teletherapy is appropriate for every feeder. Because it's not. Just like inpatient's not appropriate for every feeder, outpatient's not appropriate for every feeder, home health isn't appropriate for every feeder. We all have our places where we belong. And so there were some kids on my caseload, not appropriate, just too complex. They needed a hands-on feeder and parent training wasn't where they were yet, right? Um, Because for teletherapy, I think what you need is a, you need a lot of things to make it right, but you need a really strong clinician. You need a feeder or caregiver or whomever, a partner, that can follow direction and feels comfortable in that engagement. So the onus falls on the therapist and that person in terms of can the therapist coach, because that's what we're doing. Teletherapy is hanging its hat on the foundation of caregiver coaching and empowerment. That's what it's holding on to. And so I had a client, this one speaks volumes for me. I had a client that was a, um, a selective feeder. She had a sensory feeding disorder. But because of how strong that sensory feeding deficit was, she then had functional feeding deficits secondary to that. 
because she had never eaten orally until I came into her life. Um, and she was by this time nine, 10. And I was the only feeder that had ever gotten her to put anything to her lips or anything. She'd never touched a thing before. I had seen her in home health a couple years at that point. And we had gotten to the point where she would try to chew, do things. Um, wasn't, you know, we were more in the pleasure realm, but at least we were getting something there, right? Um, and it was helping the family dynamic. And mom had told me they had tried things without me there for a while. And it just wasn't moving very quickly, but kiddo was pretty challenging. She, her, her resistance was strong, um, but she felt safe with me. So we did it. When we moved to home, to teletherapy, sorry, correction, to teletherapy, I thought, how's this going to work? And wow, having me there, but not there was perfection. Um, I was on the screen so my client could see my face, which was very comforting to her because we had forged that relationship. But mom was my hands. And I watched mom go from scared. It was very clear that she hadn't pushed past that point before. Because even when I'd asked her to do it in therapy sessions, it was always, oh, she does it better for you and abandon, you know, you have to play with that. Do I push you hard and put you in a place where you feel really uncomfortable, you know, to dance with your, with your family sometimes. And, but having me in a screen changed it for both of them. I watched mom have these eureka moments of, I can do this. And her eyes changed from scared to empowered like that. And it was phenomenal. And her daughter started to eat. Her daughter started to do things and it changed their entire world. And I really firmly believe that teletherapy was the reason for that. Yeah. I was there, but I wasn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's, that is where, where the key lies. Empowerment, caregiver coaching. That's what it is. That's the key. Functional feeders, sensory feeders, any of it. I'm there, but I'm not just be my hands and I will walk you through it. And if something bad happens, I'm going to walk you through that too. Because we can do this together because you're going to have to do this in some capacity at some point. I'm not going to be with you all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was really cool. I rambled. I apologize. No, no. I, <laughs> I, I love what you said because I think as a clinician, we go back to this gray area. As a clinician, you think, you know, I have to be in the room. I have to be the one driving the treatment. But what you said totally hit the nail on the head because I've experienced that with my son Sometimes we've had therapists in the room and you can just tell he doesn't want them there. Or it's just like, why is this person in my kitchen? Like, this is where I sit yeah. and eat. Who is this person trying to put things in my mouth? Like we've had a, you know, a variety of feeding therapists and, and some he really just did never really took to and some he loved, but it was just a real crapshoot over who it was. And I, I think that's so, that's so interesting that you say that because that's definitely not a dynamic that I ever would have considered before. And then mm -hmm. once, you know, we sort of did get into COVID and were forced to go into this sort of coaching model and they would have me do the therapy and have me do the things. He was totally fine with it. Exactly. So I, I think that's so it. And I just can't get over because I think as a clinician, that's not something you, you think would be intuitive and that's not something you think would work out. But as a mom that's lived through this and knowing my little stubborn son, um, it's definitely yeah. it can be, can be super beneficial. Absolutely. And like I said earlier, there's more than just a mechanism at play here. So, yeah. and I've always been this way from the, from jump when I, when feeding found me. So as a specialty, this is not what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going into oral hab. I was going to work with kiddos with cochlear implants. That's where I was going. 
well, no, feeding found me. And I really firmly believe jobs have found me. My specialty has found me. All those things have found me. And I just follow it. Okay, sure. Um, the path has been guided for me. But from the beginning, you know, when I'm teaching clinicians, when I'm coaching parents all the time, it's all about, they're like, well, why do they eat better for you? Why do they do it better for you? I'm like, well, I'm comfortable. I'm calm. Yeah. My demeanor walking into this isn't one of anxiety mm-hmm. because I feel strong and confident in this. And so that's where we, I think oftentimes clinicians who are unsuccessful at feeding therapy, that's where they fall short for pe- for families is helping feeders, parents, moms, whomever calm down. Yeah. You yeah. know, as a mom, I mean, I have two kids. My son was very sick from the, for the first four years and he had feeding issues himself, which is very interesting. I joke around about that all the time. It, it is hard for a parent when you can't feed your child. That's your one job, right? As moms, all I'm supposed to do at the beginning is feed my baby and I can't. And so they're coming in there with tension. They're scared. That baby is reading all of that. And if you're scared, I am sure not letting you put that in my mouth. If you're worried about it, I'm not going to do it. Right. And so I think that's where, where we fall short, where we miss the mark. It's the relationship, the comfort, and really understanding that it's it's more than just one part, right? Um, when I teach clinicians all the time, they're like, oh, well, lungs up. They focus so heavily on just the mechanism. I'm like, well, there's a child attached to that mechanism. Do you see his foot tapping? Do you see his arm? Like, there's a whole kid there. And that kid is screaming at you right now. You know, like, they're waiting for a reason. Why? Tap into why? Was there a traumatic event? Was there something else? Is there something below the laryngeal area that's screaming at you. I've inherited clients before that I'm like, something's in the gut. It's the gut. This child's not eating because of the gut or esophageal esophagitis, something, you know, eosinophil esophageal, sorry. Um, gosh. And anyway, like there's something below that's causing this. It's, you know, you all the time. Well, it seems like they're functional. They're modified. They're fine. I'm like, well, okay. Number one was the modified long enough to really tap into the problem because if it was two bites, fatigue might be an issue. (laughs) Or is it not the mechanism itself? Is it below there? And now we're creating, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? If something makes me feel crummy, I'm not going to eat it. Then I never use my mechanism. Now I'm weak. Then I lost some of that learning. You know, it's just a domino effect. And so all of that, long way around to say that I really think teletherapy has been hands down my most successful intervention setting to date in terms of empowering and actually forging ahead and getting big gains for people. Um, because we can sit in feeding therapy forever. You know, it feels like it trickles sometimes. It's like, Oh gosh, we are like, we're like dredging through the mud here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Or maybe we jump to, Oh, it must be maintenance. We're not really making progress. Why is that? You know, uh, the time we're with kiddos, um, I say kids cause I'm so pediatric focused, but kids and babies, the time we're with them is so small yeah. compared to the time they're with their families. And so we talk about uh, parent education. We talk about caregiver training and home health and outpatient, but I really think fundamentally we don't do enough. And it's not anything against any of those therapists. They're they're handling the environment they're in. Just yeah. like I say all the time, uh, school-based therapists. I'm like, well, they're they're using the 
the hand they've been given. That's, they, you know, I have people coming. Well, the the school based therapist said they can't do that. I'm like, well, their hands are tied. They don't. They may want to do that, but yeah. they can't. You know, they they don't have the permission, quote unquote, air quotes, to do that. And so we're all just working with the best we can with what we've been given. But I really think um, teletherapy is one of those things that you have the camp of therapists that love it and stand behind it. And then you have skepticism and then you have people that are like, no way, no how, not going to work. It's, it was a band aid for the pandemic. But I do think speech pathology as a whole, if we really kind of open up our, take the blinders off a little bit and we really kind of say, okay, wait, let's move with the time and let's, let's see what we can do. Let's be flexible for our families. Let's be accessible to everyone you know, those types of things, the teletherapy has a place and it, it has a, it has a home and it has, I mean, we're, we're at the tip of the iceberg. There's so much we can do. And, and so I have therapists now on staff that ask me all the time. They're, they're apprehensive. They're scared. Basically they're, they're like, I don't know. It just, it feels like a lot of liability to do teletherapy. I'm not there. What if something happens? You know, and, and I get that. That's a, that's a real present kind of danger in a sense. And, and I tell them all the time, I'm like, well, we put things into place. We make sure we have feeding partners there. We, we discuss these things. We set expectation. We are clear and communicative more so than we are in any other setting so that we are all on the same page. Yeah. Right. So, um, and when we do that, we can make some really, really cool stuff happen. I've got two thoughts for you, Robin. Do, do you know of any, is there any research really being done in this area? Do you know of any or? There is a little bit. Feeding is the one area in teletherapy that right. nobody's really jumping into, to be honest. Um, there's, there's more research being done in other teletherapy diagnoses, things like that. Our company as a whole, so we are embarking upon accepting insurances and things like that. We were private pay. Uh, company at the beginning. It began prior to the pandemic, but obviously the pandemic pushed it a little bit faster down the track. Yeah. But we are accepting insurance. And so my hope is that our more medically based diagnoses will increase with that. You know, most of the families that have feeding, feeding diagnoses, they're not seeking private pay therapy most of the time. Sensory feeders sometimes depending, but you know, functional medically based feeding intervention. They're not necessarily going, Oh, I want to pay out of pocket for that service. So, so I'm hoping that will increase, but I'm saying all that is that um, expressible. What we've done is we are building the way we've built our um, electronic medical record, things like that is we're trying to build efficacy data into our system. So what we've done is created a goal banks, things like that, so that we can pull data on if we have this goal, how long did it take to meet that goal? How many of our clients have had that goal? All of that, all of that there. So we can kind of build in that research ourselves through experience. Um, so I'm hoping as time goes on, that increases and then we have more, more therapists that are willing to kind of set the pace. Yeah. That's the challenge too is how many times can I find a, a feeding therapist that is willing to kind of begin the path? Yeah. Because there's not always ones that I I think at the beginning, what I have found is those who are willing to feed in a teletherapy setting have to be very strong clinicians and they have to be very competent in their ability to communicate and do things via computer. So if you're not a super, super strong clinician, that's going to be very scary and disheartening. You know, you don't want to do that because you're like, I'm not, I'm unsure of myself hands on much less. Yeah. Not so. 
Yeah. But there's not a lot of research long-winded way to say no. <laughs> I hope there's more. Yeah. That brings, that's a good segue into my, my other question. You said something a, a few minutes ago, really about our approach with these, with these kids and, and these patient patients, parents, whatever word you want to use. And, and I think, you know, over the years, my approach and what I, how I think we should approach these kids has changed drastically. And, and I love what you said about, you know, you can't just, just be all up in their face and intimidating, you know, you have to sort of get on their level and be friendly and, and be open and bubbly, but not, I don't know why this like overly fake either, you know, and, yeah, and I think yeah. if we talk about, you know, skills that is, might not be learned in grad school, I, I doubt that, you know, if you, if supervisors are teaching their students, this is wonderful, but I think yeah. this is sort of like one of those soft skills that really is so important is to not be that overly confident in your face. Like, I know this is the technique. You have to do this with me because I've just seen so many more kiddos push away from that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think a lot of it is a lot of success in feeding therapy in general, not just teletherapy in all areas and all settings. There's intangibles. Mm -hmm. I, I, I often meet people that I'm like, they'll say, I want to learn feeding. And so I'll get to know them because I am that person. Uh, my husband says, I'll talk to a wall. So, you know, that's what it is. So, uh, <laughs> so I just kind of learned them. And I think to myself, okay, you have to be genuine. You have to be honest. You have to be warm and be able to read. It's just the reading, the reading of a, of a kiddo. What do they need from me? What's, what's going to make them motivated? What speaks to them today? Cause what speaks to them today may be different than what speaks to them tomorrow. So early on in my career, I guess, gosh, my daughter's 11. So I think I was pregnant with her when I attended a course by Sherry Fraker and Laura Walbart. And they, it's preemie talk. They, they're therapists at Cokie Mill Farms. And so Cokie Mill Farms, Cokie Mill, the hospital, sorry. (laughs) My brain is, it's Wednesday morning and my brain's, but anyway, I went to that course. They, they do a lot of things based upon, you know, getting permission and things like that. They, include things from Marsha Dunkline and OT. So my entire background at the beginning was very integrated with OT and PT. So multidisciplinary, speech was not on on an island. We were very, very team approached. And so a lot of our feeding therapy at the outpatient clinic where I worked had speech and OT working in tandem. So I learned a lot from the OTs that I was around. Um, and I think I think speech pathologists who want to do feeding really need to understand that sensory part. They need to understand all of those things. Cause if we, if we don't understand that, then we're missing the mark for our, our clients completely. And on the, on the other side, if OT is the primary feeder, they need to understand the function too. We, we need to marry the two things. Right. Yeah. And so early on, but that course changed my entire perspective. I go back to it all the time, uh, food chaining, things like that, getting permission, understanding that even a crumb is a big thing. So I call myself a buffet therapist. And sometimes I take yeah. a little bit of this. I leave a bit, little bit of that. I use some SOS stuff. I, I love that technique. Yeah. Yeah. Every kiddo needs a different array, right? We have an entire toolbox full of tools. Uh, you know, a carpenter's not going to build a house using only a hammer. He's going to use a variety of tools and that's what we need to do too. And so it changed everything. It They put it in perspective. They made it okay to follow the kiddo's lead and not be pushy. They made it okay to 
understand that a parent is scared. They made it okay to say, hey, I, I understand that th- today's not the day. It's not going to work today. Whether it's mom's anxiety is at a high, I mean, I've walked into homes or had clients walk in before or even on teletherapy and I can read all over the parent that today is not going to be successful no matter what the kiddo is doing because there's something else happening. There's a stressor that's weighing on that unit that's going to so adjust, right? Oop, pivot. Let me find them success in some way. Where can we get some joy, some, some little moment of glee kind of thing? a tangible that they can hold on to and go, you know, we are making some progress here, even when it feels like we're not. And so they, they changed it all. You know, they put it in perspective of if I put something in front of you, you've never seen before a pizza with scorpions on it. And I just said, eat it. What would you do? You're not going to put that in your mouth. Or if I said, close your eyes, I'm just going to stick something in your mouth. Would you be okay with that? Absolutely not. You know, all of those things. And so they changed my entire perspective. And so from that point forward, I just looked at it differently and just went with my gut. And um, it hasn't stared me wrong so far. So, (laughs) yeah, I I love this, Robin. I I love just I I, sort of the holistic approach about this. I, you know, obviously having a son with feeding issues has totally flipped all of my textbook clinical beliefs completely upside down. And 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 I really like what you said about you know take one from one thing, forget the rest, because I think that's that's so important. I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on like one treatment or this is the be all end all, this is going to solve all the problems. And it, and it never really usually is like that. And I think, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I took that whole course and it's like, okay, well, don't, I hate this thing. Like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I'm sure you took one or two things that have really changed your practice, but if the rest of the course doesn't apply then that, you know, it's, it's not a waste. And yeah. I mean, even sometimes I'll go to courses and the course itself didn't really, I didn't take much from that, but maybe it was a colleague I met and an interaction or some comment that they made or something like that, or it was affirming. I've been to courses that I'm like, you know what? I do know what I'm doing yeah. because there are moments. It doesn't matter how, like you said, the more I learn, the less I realize I know. Yeah. And But sometimes we need that, that affirmation that, oh man, I, I do kind of know what I'm doing. I I do. Because I think sometimes, especially down the road, things become so second nature and they just seem so automatic that we think everybody knows this, right? Well, why wouldn't you know to do that? And and I think to myself, my husband puts me in my place a lot in terms of he's like, that's not the way the world thinks. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It just, it seems only natural that you would say this when your kiddo does this. And he's like, no, that's not what people think. And he tells me all the time, you don't play, you therapize. You don't realize it, but you never just play. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, I'm just playing. He's like, no, everything has a, like a, a hue to it. He's like, everything you do, when you teach it, I'm my best friend, which is crazy. You just had a baby. We're almost 42 and she has a one-year-old, which is baffling to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, so she had feeding issues. My wonderful little Maeve had feeding issues. And so I went and I went to help my best friend and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, just do this, do that, tilt her this way. Do you realize her feet are above her head? Like move, change her position. And, and my husband was like, that was really cool to watch because he had never really seen, you know, they don't get to see what you do. Yeah. Yeah. And he watched me do it. And he's like, that was cool. I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't do anything. He's like, yeah, you did. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. It's just natural. I mean, I'm just a mom. I fed my babies. He's like, that was not what you just did. Yeah. And so it's cool to have that moment where you're like, you know what? 
I do have something to offer. I have something that I know and can give to families or clinicians or whatever, you know, and you going for your PhD, that's really cool. Um, but I have really found as I've gotten older in time that young clinicians just need the value of our, our experience. Yeah. They just need somebody to go, you know what you're doing. I oftentimes I'm a sounding board. Yeah. They just need to go, Hey, is this right? And I'm like, well, of course, you know, <laughs> reflecting back a question. So they answer their own question and they're like, don't do it. I'm like, yeah. but you already have told me the answer. You know, this Yeah. feel confident in what you know, because you know it own it. And so that's super fun to watch. You know, all of those things are fun to watch, but I, I really think, like you said, being put in the mom position changes it. Um, it changes your perspective. You understand that feeling of lack of diagnosis. The under, you understand that we don't know is very much more detrimental than a diagnosis itself. Whenever somebody, a, a, a clinician, a doctor, anybody says, well, that was a normal test and we don't know what the problem is. That's so much harder to swallow than knowing the elephant in the room that you're fighting against. Um, so, or a monster in the room that you're fighting against. But so I think it, it changed everything and just being very human about what we do. Yeah. Cause I, I really think that changes everything. If we really come at it that way and less cold and clinical, that's where magic happens. Yeah. I think that's it. Yeah. It really does. I mean, sometimes it's something simple, right? Yeah. Something little. You know, I've had infants that have come home from the hospital and like, well, suddenly they're not feeding well. I have an eval and it'll be something as small as positioning yeah. or hold the bottle a different way. I mean, like, and you'd think I was a dream weaver. I had changed the whole world. I'm like, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. You just needed somebody to say, no, nope, do it this way. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I love that you said that because I think. Clinicians don't realize that it, to us, it may be one or two things. And we're like, is that really, did I really make an impact today? But to a mother of a child with complex medical needs that is not eating, that is earth shattering. And I will say, you know, we, we didn't have access to an SLP when my son was itty bitty, but I did go to a um, lactation consultant and she actually knew a lot about different bottle feedings and, and different nipples and things like that. And I remember I went to like one session, I think he was maybe two weeks old. He had been, or he'd been home for two weeks because he was in the NICU for two weeks. So he's probably about a month old. And I just remember like just sobbing, like so frustrated with everything. Yeah. And she literally made two little tweaks. And I <laughs> just like, just could not stop crying that like she figured it out. But like, as a mom going through that, you are, I mean, you're so exhausted. You're, so, you cannot yeah. think straight. You can't even remember how to put your shoe on, let alone like <laughs> figure this stuff out from this thing that you yeah. have no experience with. So I, you know, my, yeah. my whole point to that is sometimes as therapists, we think we have to change so many things or we have to make this profound impact. And, and I assure you as a mother, these little tweaks make all the difference in the world sometimes. Oh yeah. And, and sometimes more. I think because sometimes it's, no, you're doing so much of this, right? Yeah. That holds a lot of weight too. Like you, you know, you have parents all the time. Like, did I do this? Is this my fault? You And you're like, let's worry about where we are right now. Or do I have a tongue tie? Do we just clip it? And that will change everything. I'm like, well, no, (laughs) 
Even if you do yeah, have a tongue tie, yeah, if you clip yeah. it, it probably won't I remember won't even, yeah, I had her, she was like, <laughs> you know, stop changing the nipple. Like he's doing fine on this. And I was like, he is, but he should be doing more. And she's like, no, he's two weeks old. This is all he should be. I was like, why does nobody tell you this stuff? You know? Oh yeah. Oh, well, and, and, and like you said, like consumerism, like there's nipples and things that say all these ages. So yes. we think, oh, yes. we need to move to those. I'm like, yes. no, you, there's nothing that says your child needs to drink from a level three nipple ever. Yes. yes. I'm glad you said that because I actually went through that with my daughter who was completely typically developing. I, yeah, I can't remember what one she was on for like six months. Or so. I'm like, this is wild. Like, why are we not advancing? But like, she, I mean, it was huge, like eating plenty. Like, so. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I'm like, it, everybody's different. You know, there's, if we look at, I've had referrals for infants that are like, oh, they're really messy. And I'm like, yeah. okay. So I'm like analyzing, looking, and I'm like, it's just a messy eater. There's nothing wrong with this mechanism, but they, they lose it out of their side of their mouth. I'm like, yeah, a lot of typical kids lose. I mean, like, have you yeah. watched people eat before? <laughs> like, <laughs> not everybody's a clean eater. It's okay. You know, yeah. my daughter did the same thing. And I'm like, there is such a wide range of typical, like we just want, yeah. and that's where at the beginning I said, I always talk about functional imperfection. No mechanism is perfect. No feeding arrangement is perfect. None of it's perfect. I eat, I've been eating for 42 years almost. And there's times I swallow wrong and things mess up. And I'm like, oh, look. Well, if yeah. I hung my hat on that every time, I'd need it too. You know, like we, we goof, we do things, you know, and so many families are like, well, we're not moving, we're progressing with the nipples, but this says, or pacifier, everybody says I shouldn't use a pacifier. And I'm like, look, um, well, I'm going to tell you this. And I remember getting told this by my pediatrician and I have held these words and I've shared them with parents all the time. And I tell them all the time, I say, I'm here to educate you, not to judge you. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to educate you on ideal this would be the best case scenario this is functional this will work but what you choose to do if you need to use a pacifier to have sanity so your child will be quiet for a little while so that you can breathe well by all means do it you know it's my i'm sorry it happens or you know sippy cup never use a sippy cup well are we going to let all of our one-year-olds walk around or try to toddle around with an open cup? No, no one's going to do that. It's going to make a mess. Nobody wants that. So let's choose our sippy cup wisely. Let's do it where the top of it is as close to an open cup as possible. And we're not using our top lip to push down on something that's totally not the way we drink. You know, <laughs> you know just do it with an educated perspective. Yeah. You know, we all have to live. I'm not going to, you know, judge you upon the choices you make. Yeah. And if I walk in to your session or I come onto your session and I say, how did it go this week? And you say, we did not have time. We did nothing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because mm-hmm. that's life and that happens. And you should not feel afraid to tell me with all honesty that it quote unquote failed, um, that it was a success, that you were unable because we should have a relationship so good, so strong that you can be completely honest because that's the only way I'm going to help you get through this. And if you tell me, oh, I did it all and we're not making any progress, then what am I going to think? I'm going to think, well, this isn't working. I need to change my approach mm-hmm. when that may not be the case. Yeah, We just need to give it more time. So, you know, it, it's all of those things. I, I just really think that we need to kind of put more stock in that, uh, the real human nature of what we do. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 when my son was super little, I, he was getting so much therapy. We had so many different therapists in and out of the house. And mm-hmm. I just remember we had one therapist. I can't remember which specialty she was now, but 
she was always like, okay, for homework, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And she would come back the next time. And I'm like, I, we, no, we didn't, we didn't do anything. Yeah. And she's like, well, why? I'm like, because he has 97 million other sessions after you. Like <laughs> after that, we're exhausted. Like, I just want to sit with my baby, you know? So I think that's something we don't realize either is that our patients yes. or our kids often were not the only discipline, you know, the, 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 right. system, the only therapy session that the mother has to, or the, or the father, whoever the caregiver is, has to subscribe to and, and learn everything about. That's such a big it, yeah. you know, caregiver burden, of course, is so, so, so very real. And, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, some of our most successful therapists and some of the best relationships that we've had are ones that I could honestly say, like, you know, I understand what you're saying with this, but the practicality of it is it's not going to fit in our life. So let's try a different approach. Right. Right. And, and you know, I, I just love those therapists that are, that are agreeable to that, you know, because it's, it's not doing either of us any good. If you're giving me an intervention, we can't get it done. I'm lying to you about it. That's helping nobody, you know, yeah, so. it, it's not, it's not, it's just making you feel worse. Yeah. You know, fundamentally, I, when we're learning, I remember thinking, you know, when early on care, caregiver education, we're making them clinicians when we're not there. No, 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 no. That's in my perspective. That's not what we want. I'm not trying to make a mom a speech pathologist, just a therapist. A mom is a mom. Yeah. A mom should be comfort. A mom should be safety. Mom should be successful. When a child engages with mom, it should be a happy experience, not a stressful one. Mm-hmm. I'm there to push you past the brain. I'm there to push you into those uncomfortable moments because I'm going to walk away. I'm not your comfort. Mm-hmm. Right. But mom, when I hand over you know, practice or whatever, whatever I'm going to hand a parent, a caregiver, I say mom, because my mind's in infant world. And oftentimes it is mom. But when I hand over homework, quote unquote, for a caregiver, I am usually 90% sure they're going to be successful, because whatever they're going to do needs to be pleasant. It needs to be gratifying. It needs to be motivating. So if I'm handing you something that you feel like you're beating your head against a wall, you are not going to do it. Yeah. It is not going to be fun. They are, you're not, it's not going to help anybody anywhere, any, no how. And so I always tell people, I, I'm like, we're not making clinicians out of parents. We are teaching them to monopolize on moments. Now in feeding, luckily there's feeding times throughout a day and you can monopolize on those because you have to attempt to feed, right? When it comes to speech and language, I'm like, don't give them an extra thing to do. Do it during bath time. Do it while you're riding in the car because your child's captive and they can't get out of that car seat. Right. So do it during those moments where it's already built into your life. Don't make it a separate thing that they have to do because more than likely they're not going to do it. Cause I'm a mom and I'll be honest when I'm done. I'm like, you know, I used to think I came home and my daughter would be like, let's play with Play-Doh. I'm like, Oh gosh, absolutely not. I've been playing with Play-Doh all day. I don't want to play with Play-Doh. No, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. So it's the same thing. If you've been doing therapy all day, you've been on, you know, especially people coming into your home. That's hard too. Yeah. Another kind of caveat to the whole, why I think teletherapy is super cool in this regard is when I was going into homes, there were times when um, I felt like I got, I just got this gut feeling that I got canceled because there were dishes in a sink or Somebody was worried about what they'd see, what I'd see when I walked in a home, or maybe there was an extra person that had stayed and they didn't really want them to see what was going on or whatever. Um, but with teletherapy, you can clean a corner, one little spot. Yeah. And I see a very tunneled vision of your home and you can show me 
what you choose to show me. Mm -hmm. And so nine times out of 10, people feel much more comfortable and safe in that regard. Right. And so it's just, it's just really cool in terms of how my perspective has changed coming into this world. Um, I'm a huge proponent now, obviously I, I joke around, I'm going to die on this mountain for sure, because I think it's something that if we really, if our profession as a whole would just really hug it, Mm-hmm. we could do some really cool stuff with it. And we all have a spot, you know, the hospital-based therapist is important. The SNF therapist is important. The school-based therapist is important. The home health therapist is important. We all have a spot. There's a plenty for all of us to fit into. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been awesome, Robin. Thank you so, so much for all of this. Do you have any, any final thoughts for the people? I think you pretty much just summed it up there, but anything else? Uh, no. I'm a talker. Sorry. No, that's, that's fine. This is great. I think this is a great, you know, overview of both clinical, but then also I keep coming back to those soft skills, which I really don't like that word, but they're just, they're, they're so much more important than just being soft skills. So thank you for shedding a light into all of that. And hopefully today, maybe, you know, change somebody's perspective about teletherapy or maybe pique their interest that this could be an option. And, you know, I know there's so many barriers to entry for therapy and things like that. And I think this really can be a viable option for so many people for one reason or another. So thank you so, so much for sharing. And yeah, I hope some SLPs are inspired to give it a whirl. Yeah. Come on over, try it out. It's, it's really fun. And hopefully the, um, the third party payers of the world can uh, keep up yes. with us and, and yeah. keep going. I think, I think we are do we are building in you know, enough data and things like that, that I'm hoping that as with everything, you know, every new, new uh, path that we set ourselves on, it takes time to get everybody to catch up. So um, I I really think it will. And hopefully there are more therapists that uh, decide to kind of come along and see what happens. Because I I really think we have all kinds of things at our disposal and and our, our profession is so vast. There's so much we can do and there's so many opportunities. So hopefully we can give everybody access to care anywhere at any point. So that's the hope. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you. And that's our wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.